Well, good morning, Oakwood family. So glad that you're here this morning as we are going to wrap up this series we've been in the last four weeks called Don't Give Up. Now, before we do that, I want to mention a couple of things. First of all, just rejoicing in the Lord uh, with those baptisms with Lillian and Dana this morning and praise the Lord for his work there. I'm going to ask us as church family, would you pray for them? They are just starting their race, right? Some of us halfway through the race, some of us getting to the end of our race, they're just starting. Would you pray for those that make decisions in our church? I know we've had about eight baptisms over the last seven weeks, but uh, man, uh, God is doing some amazing work. Let's come uh, alongside of them as church family to disciple them, to pray with them, and to encourage them as they run their race. Also, before we get started this morning, uh, one more uh, just just quick word of announcement I want everybody to know. Uh, Corey Bricks, who's our children's minister, is taking a sabbatical. And this has been planned in the work for uh, several months, um, but he's not going to be here for about the next month. And uh, during this time, it's a time of refreshing for him. We've asked him, don't come in the office, don't work on anything for the church, just have time with your family, take some time off. Um, and, and it's in, in, in the ministry today, uh, there's so many times where there's this high rate of dropout and burnout in ministry. And so we think it's important as a church to allow our ministry staff to be able to do that every once in a while, but from just a break from writing lessons and organizing things. So here's what I want you to do, church. Be praying for Corey as he is on this break this month. Um, don't text him any questions because he's not going to respond. It's not because he doesn't love you. It's because we told him not to, okay? Um, the other thing is to uh, just, if you have questions, we, we've got, you know, part-time children's staff here. You can call the office. We'll solve any problems we have. But just anticipating a great month, good things. But just wanted you guys to be aware of that as Corey is on a break. So if you see him, he might still attend church here. Uh, he may not. You may see him out in public. Um, just don't ask him any questions except, how you doing, man? been praying for you um, and just to encourage him on this break. So just want to let everybody know about that. Um, I'm really excited about grief care starting too. So make sure you pay attention to that. Uh, first and third Tuesdays of every month starts in June. Uh, for those of you that maybe have lost a, a loved one, um, man, it's going to be a great, great ministry. God's doing some uh, tremendous work. And, and if you knew the whole backstory as to how we're getting this, and uh, it's really neat. God's done some amazing, amazing things. So if you have your Bible this morning, I want to turn, invite you to turn to the book of Hebrews. We're going to begin with chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. This has kind of been our guiding three verses uh, for this series. Um, we are also going to be in the book of Nehemiah this morning. So just kind of letting you know if you're using a paper Bible, uh, you'll want to be in Hebrews, uh, New Testament, chapter 12, and then Old Testament, Nehemiah. That's where we're going to spend most of our morning. Now, uh, if you're new here this morning, you are always welcome to grab a Bible that's around you if you didn't bring one. Or you can get on your phone, your iPad, or your tablet. If you'll just download the Oakwood app, you can search for it in your app store. Just search for Oakwood Enid. And if you'll do that, you can download the app. Uh, when you open the app up, there's uh, several ways for you to connect with us. But one of those is it'll say sermon notes, all the scriptures, all the bullet points, everything will be there for you. The main thing we want right now is for you to hear from the Lord God, for you to connect with him through the Holy Word this morning. And so maybe you just pause right now and say a prayer. Just say, Lord, today, speak to me. Lord, today, speak to me. Amen. Let's read the passage. Hebrews uh, chapter 12, verses 1 through 3 says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, 
Let us throw off everything that hinders. We talked about that last week. Everything that hinders and specifically the sin that so easily entangles. So easily entangles us, tries to lead, lead us away from God. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Or I would say it this way, so you don't give up. Don't give up on your race of faith. You know, it, I love the way it starts there in verse 1. Um, in, in the Greek there, that word for race, when it talks about the race, we're running this race that's marked out for us. That word race is actually a, a Greek word, um, agon. A-G-O-N is how you would translate that into English. And it's actually where we get our word and the idea for the word agony. Okay, so when you are running your agony, <laughs> doesn't that kind of frame it up for us? That sometimes the Christian walk is a struggle. There's glorious times where we are in the watery grave of baptism. We're raised to walk in newness of life, as it says in Romans 6. And then we begin this race. And this race can be referred to at times as agony. You see, the Christian walk and the Christian race, it's not a fun run. If that's what you thought you were getting into. <laughs> Oh, it's a one-mile fun run. No, 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 no. This is a 26.2-mile marathon, and it's grueling. And there's going to be obstacles along the way. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. You know, through this series, we've understand that there have been some difficulties. There have been some demands. Things have been challenging. We've looked back at Hebrews chapter 11, this famous passage of Scripture called the Faith Hall of Fame. And we've looked at Bible characters mentioned in it like Abraham and Sarah and, and Moses. And then we talked about Joseph. And we talked about God's providence, how he works through all the things that happen, the good things and the bad things. And God continues to work as we run our races today. But today, we're going to veer a little bit from Hebrews, and we're going to go to Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah is not probably one of those books when you thought, man, I'm going to read my Bible this week, and I'm feeling like Nehemiah this morning. I mean, yeah, that's where I want to be. You know, you're probably, I mean, most of us are probably thinking, what, Psalms, right, Proverbs, you know, Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, hey, book of James, New Testament epistles. I mean, you can't go wrong with any part of Scripture, but probably most of us, if we're going to start a devotional time this week, we're probably not thinking, hey, we should look at Nehemiah. But I'm telling you, folks, the whole counsel of the Word of God, even the Old Testament, the New Testament, all of it, is good and beneficial for us to read and for us to understand and for us to know. Now, here's the deal this morning, is I'm going to give you this snapshot into Nehemiah's life. And you may think, man, Eric is talking fast this morning. Folks, there's a reason. I'm trying to get us out before lunch, okay? So we don't want to start a hot lunch program for the kids here at the church. So I will be uh, clipping along this morning as we go through the story. I'm going to read just a handful of verses, and I'll kind of fill in the story of Nehemiah's life as we go through this. But I want us to know about this man named Nehemiah. His story comes to us at a time that is very troubling for the nation of Israel. They have been exiled into a foreign land. They are bond, in bondage. They're bond servants to a people group 
called the Babylonians. And his story that we get to read today, and if you read the whole book of Nehemiah, and I, I cannot say enough, if you read it, you'd be so blessed this week if you just read the book of Nehemiah. It's not that long. If you read the whole book of Nehemiah, this is what you'd walk away with. You'd say, this is like reading a 2,500-year-old prayer journal of someone who is running their race with the Lord. And that's really how it reads. You're going to see some of that this morning. So let me take you with a little bit of historical background just to understand where we're at. It's 587 B.C. And the Babylonians have just conquered the Israelites and they've hauled them off to their capital in their land of Babylon so they could serve and benefit them. They have destroyed Jerusalem. And if you think of 587 B.C. and you're a historian, you probably just thought 587 B.C., that's when the temple was destroyed. And you would be correct. When Babylon came into Israel and exiled the Jews, they not only destroyed Jerusalem, they destroyed the first temple. It was a sad, dark time. And then just a few years later, in 539 B.C., the nation of Persia actually came in and overtook Babylon. And this is where we're going to begin to catch the story of Nehemiah. He is an Israelite. He is a Jew. He is in in exile and is far away in a foreign land. He actually resides in the capital city of Persia and is in a very prominent position as he serves as cupbearer to the king. And we'll understand that uh, more in just a minute. He probably has never seen and actually laid eyes on his homeland as Israel and Jerusalem are over a thousand miles away. But to put this into context, it has been about 140 years since Israel has been conquered. And that's where we pick up the story of Nehemiah today. So if you have your Bible, uh, if you're following along in the app, let's look at Nehemiah chapter 1. I know in the notes it says verse 3. I'm actually going to skip to verse 2 just to give you a little more background here. And it says, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. So what's been happening, just to, again, get us to understand, brought up the speed here, is they've been slowly having them return to the homeland. Maybe they've aged out. Maybe uh, their time of service has been uh, upended. They've decided, hey, but we're going to send them back. There were also some Jews that weren't taken into exile for a variety of reasons. And the generations have turned over one, two, maybe even three times here. And so there's these that have been in the homeland and and in the tore down wreckage of of Judah and Israel and Jerusalem specifically. And then there's some that got exiled over into Babylon and now Persia. They've been serving over there. And so a remnant comes from them and gives a report to Nehemiah. Now verse 3. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. Now, we read that, and we're like, okay, the gates are broken, been burned with fire, the walls have fallen down, but this is a big deal. See, Jerusalem is the holy city of God. Jerusalem, in all of its splendor, housed the temple. Jerusalem is the capital city of Israel. It, this is very, very important. And so it, it's, a, it's a socially unacceptable that this city would be in disarray like this as a holy city of the people of Israel. But there's also a many spiritual ties 
Now, what's happened in the meantime is as this remnant has been back in Jerusalem, their number one priority was to try to restore Israel. And so they've actually been building a second temple. It's believed by most scholars that the second temple is actually um, complete or near completion when Nehemiah's story comes on the scene. Nehemiah is going to be a contemporary with a prophet named Ezra. And the two of them actually have a twofold mission. Nehemiah is going to help rebuild the walls, but we're going to read later toward the end of the message about some other things that God was trying to accomplish through their efforts of returning to their homeland. And now in verse 4, we get to see how does Nehemiah respond to this news. He says, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and I fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. This becomes a pattern. If you read the whole book of Nehemiah, there are many times throughout the book where he is going to pray. And he's going to pray and he's going to pray some more. You're going to find this pattern uh, playing out in Nehemiah's life it's so, as it's so important to him. And so he's at this point now where he's heard about it, he's sad about it. And then he begins this prayer in, in the following verses there. I'm going to read you just one part of that um, in, in verse 6. He says this. This will give you kind of the tone of what's been going on. He says, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you, God. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed your commands, decrees, and laws and you that you gave to your servant Moses. It's almost like it's in, in this next part there's a prayer going on and he's making a, a confession of all the sins that got them into exile. The reason that we're here in Persia today is because of our sinfulness and not following your ways and, and not being your people. If you studied the Old Testament, you know this is a pattern with the Israelites. Oh, God, you know, you're our God. We love you, and we're going to walk in your ways. And then they say, oh, God, we're going to go our own way, and we're going to worship false gods and idols and not obey your laws. And it's as if there's several times in these movements in the Old Testament where, where we're with you, God, and we love you, God, and, and then we're going to go worship someone else, or we're going to do things our own way. And it's like God takes a step back and says, okay, have it your way. And here comes Babylon. And here comes Persia. And here comes destroying the temple and destroying Jerusalem. It's such a dark age for the Israelites. Go down to verse 11, chapter 1, verse 11. As he's finishing up his prayer here to the Lord in response to what the news that he's just received, he says this, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. This man he's talking about is Artaxerxes of Persia. But look how this verse ends. It says, I was a cupbearer. I was cupbearer to the king. Now, uh, how many of you have ever been cupbearers? Anyone? No cupbearer? Anybody know a couple? Okay, it's just not something that we, we do know much about today, but this was a very, very important position, would be really, really close to the king of a country, and the cupbearer was the one that took all of the fluids that were going to be ingested by the king, and he tested every one of them. In fact, historically it says the cupbearer would actually take a sip of every drink to make sure it wasn't foul, to make sure it wouldn't make the king sick, to make sure it wasn't poisoned, in case there was some type of an assassination attempt. And that cupbearer would take a drink of that and see how it reacts and see how it tasted to their body. And then they would hand that cup to the king. 
So he has been in this position as cupbearer to the king. He's right there with the Persian emperor, Artaxerxes. So let's read on here in chapter 2 as we continue in the story. In the ninth month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was, bright, was brought for him, I took the wine and I gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, and so the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. And I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Let's pause there for a minute. He makes this plea, right? And I'm thinking if I'm king, Artaxerxes, most powerful ruler in all of the world at this point in time, I've overtaken countries, I've overtaken Babylon, I'm like, hmm, cool, I'm so sorry about that, I'm sorry you're really sad today. Um, let's get on about my business. I am the king, and let's you know, buck up, Brother Bill. You know, I mean, come on. And, you know, and, but, that, but listen to the king's response here in verse 4. The king said to me, what is it that you want? You see, as he's running this race that's marked out before him, God has a plan, and God is working. He's working in the background. It says, now notice his response. Verse 4 says, the king said to me, what is it you want? And how did Nehemiah respond? Here it is again. Then I prayed to the God of heaven. Right there in the moment, on the spot, he goes back to prayer again. And then in verse 5 it says, and then I answered the king. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Wow. That's a big ask. You're asking King Artaxerxes. This is probably not in his plan for his reign, for his government. This is not something that he's aspired to. It's a big ask, but he's prayed. He feels like this is where God's leading him. This is some of his kingdom work that he is supposed to do. And so he gives the ask. Now look at the response in verse 6. Then the king, and notice what it says here, with the king sitting beside him. You know, sometimes when your queen is sitting beside you, you kind of want to flex and show strength, you know. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. Now, we could stop there, and I could talk for an hour about all the amazing things that God has done already in Nehemiah's life, just to get to this point. But he has got permission and blessing from King Artaxerxes of Persia, the most powerful man in the world, to go back to his homeland that they, you know, had overtaken, the Babylonians had overtaken, now Persia had overtaken Babylon, to go back and to rebuild and fortify walls of a city that they had technically, through inheritance, had overtaken. Does that sound odd to you? That sounds like it kind of doesn't make political sense, maybe not even social sense, but God, again, is at work. God, again, is moving. And after he's been fasting and after he keeps praying, he emerges with this firm conviction and assurance that he needs to do something. And as we continue in the rest of Nehemiah's story, I just want to tell you, it will be an obstacle course. It will not be easy. 
I want to relate this to us as we walk with the Lord and as we're running out our races of faith today, that when we are running our Christian race, we will face obstacles just like Nehemiah. I'm going to give those to you categorically this morning. And, and the first one is this. The first obstacle is the obstacle of indifference. The obstacle of indifference. We, we suffer from this obstacle as Christians. As God sets before us things that he wants us to do and he marks out our race, we sometimes have an indifference to what he wants Nehemiah has every right to be indifferent. He's the cupbearer to the king. That's a pretty good position to be sitting in. I mean, Jerusalem is 1,000 miles away. Folks, he didn't just jump on a plane. I mean, that's like a three-month journey, and that's if you've got the fast camels, and that's if you've got some help and supplies. And It's not like something that just happens, you know. This is, I mean, this, this is real effort here. He could be so indifferent that no one else is doing anything. Yeah, they tried to rebuild the temple. You read later as you study the temple that they didn't do a great job of it. That the, table, that the temple is actually going to be rebuilt into splendor in a later time period. It's just a basic, simple thing that they've done. And, and, and no one else is doing this. And the other thing is, like, I'm in a good position. It's cupbearer to the king. I, things are going fine. I sip the wine. I give it to the king. I mean, do I really need to do anything different in life? This is a good place to be, and he could just has every reason to be so indifferent to this. Psychologists today say that we kind of suffer by this thing called the bystander effect. Have any of you ever read about this or heard about this? Psychologists say that there's this bystander effect today, and, and they talk about how that affects us. That there's situations happening in the world around us, and just something inside of us, in, in, in just our flesh and our human condition, the fact that we have a heart and a soul and a mind, that sometimes we can see grave injustices or situations in the world where most, certainly not all, because there are very, very dark and evil people in the world, but certainly that most normal people would actually have a response to it. Let me give you an example. Let's say that today there's a 90-year-old woman in TJ Maxx's parking lot. As she's trying to make it into the store, she trips and stumbles and falls. And at that moment, there are several people that are quite a bit younger than her that go over there and they start kicking her and beating her and jumping on top of her. And it looks like they're going to kill her. You are in the parking lot watching this happen. I would like to think that most, if not everyone in this room would intervene. You would do something about it. Whether you're a Christian or not, in that moment, there's just something inside you that says, that is not right. To see that kind of suffering, to see that kind of evil happen. So you would run and you would interfere. But that's not what happens in the world today. Not even so for Christians. Because what we do in the world today is we have the bystander effect. Here, let me capture this moment on my phone. Someone else will go save the lady. Oh, let me get a good recording of this so I can get lots of likes and post it online. Maybe someone will give me money for it. And we have our phones and we record things, but we don't do things. We don't take action. It's this phenomenon called the bystander effect. It's not just about phones and social media and posting. It's just the fact that we just don't intervene when we know we should. Because sometimes, let's be honest, it's easier to not have guts and to say nothing when you know you should say something. And if you've been a Christian for any amount of time and you study the Bible and you know what God's word says, then you know what is right and wrong. So why do we continue to keep thinking about it and trying to justify it in our mind that someone else will say something. Someone else will do something. Someone else will interfere. Someone else will intervene. 
And the fact of the matter is, God is telling us to do something. Now, a lot of us, we're good Christians. I mean, we're good Christians. We've got good intentions. Good intentions. I intend to help. I just don't. I, I'm one of those people, yeah, yeah, I, 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 I could be a part of this, you know, and do something for the Lord, but I, I don't. I know when they come up on stage and say, hey, we need, a, you know, 150 volunteers for Vacation Bible School to plant seeds of eternity in the, in the hearts of these kids through this Christ the Lordian thing that my church is doing. We look around the sanctuary, and here in the second service, it's probably a little more comfortable than the first service just because of numbers. But we look around, we say, oh, there's lots of people here. Someone else will be with the children. Someone else will teach the children. Someone else will volunteer. When we have a work day at the church, someone else will give up their Saturday to be a part of the work day. When they need help in the twos part of the nursery to teach those two-year-olds Bible lessons, oh, someone else. When we need help in preschool or maybe in teen ministry or maybe in the sound booth or in the tech ministries or on the worship team, someone else will. I have good intentions. I love Jesus, okay? Don't get me wrong. I love Jesus. But... And I intend to do wonderful things. I know he's, he's got my, my, my path marked out for me. I read that in scripture. I know he's got great things to serve the kingdom that he wants me to do. But I have this tendency to do what? To be indifferent. Call it what it is. I'm here to tell you this morning this truth, that intentions are the enemies of accomplishments. How many people have great intentions but never accomplish anything? Some of us, like if we're being honest this morning, that's us. I mean, we haven't done anything for the gospel because we're indifferent. Someone else. Someone else will volunteer. Someone else will step up. The second obstacle this morning is the obstacle of insufficiency. The obstacle of insufficiency. Nehemiah, if you read the whole book, and we don't, for the sake of time this morning, have the time to do that, but as you read the book, you see that Nehemiah understands his fallacy. He understands that, 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 that he is a frail man. He, he's just a man. He is not God, but God has called him to do something, and he's going to rest in the sufficiency of God and not in the insufficiency of man. Look at the end of verse 2 of our passage. Notice that he says at the very end of verse 2, after he said this about having sadness of heart, he says, I was very much afraid. I was very much afraid because I know I'm I'm insufficient. I I don't know if I can do the work God's called me to do to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the walls, to help rebuild Jerusalem back to being a fortified city and a power and a representative of God. I'm not sure I can do that, let alone getting before Artaxerxes. And making the big ask here, I was very much afraid. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, it's a great reminder. The Apostle Paul says that Jesus said to them, he said, but he said to me, this is Jesus speaking to the Apostle Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me why and he went on to say for when i am weak then i am strong because in my human weakness god's power is glorified and shown all the more and i know we have excuses right for how insufficient we are i'm not smart enough to teach the uh, second grade sunday school class i don't know enough about the bible 
For some of you, your excuse is, I'm too old. Let me pick on some of you that are youthful. For some of you, your excuse is, I'm too young. I'm too old. I'm not qualified. I don't know enough. I don't have the resources. I have zero experience. And those are the kind of people that God uses throughout Scripture. Why? Because when you are weak, he is strong. When you think, well, I'm going to flex my muscles about this. No, God comes in and says, no, watch this. I've got you. I will carry you. I will give you everything that you need. How does a person get over this obstacle of insufficiency? Well, again, if you read the book of Nehemiah, and we've already seen it twice in just 10 verses that I've read, Nehemiah would say, pray. Pray. Pray for wisdom. Pray for strength. Pray for faith. Pray for whatever you need, but you be a person that will pause and pray. And it's so kind of awkward and weird when he does it in, in, in chapter 2 there. The king says, what is it that you want? And then it says, then I prayed to the God of heaven. <laughs> like, just a second, Artaxerxes, let me pray. <laughs> you know, it's, it's awkward, but it's the truth. He would say, be a person of prayer because prayer yields much for the kingdom of God. And prayer sometimes teaches us and requires us to be patient, to wait upon the Lord, but understand the Lord in our insufficiency is sufficient. The third obstacle is the obstacle of opposition. The obstacle of opposition. Let me throw out some names that are going to be opposing Nehemiah in his book. Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. By the way, those are great baby names for strong boys. So I'd love to have a little Sanballat running around the nursery. It's like, a little Sanballat, it's a Bible name, Nehemiah. Yeah. But these three characters, they show up right at the beginning in chapter 2, verse 19. I'll, I'll read it to you. It says, But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, heard about these rebuilding efforts that Nehemiah is doing in Jerusalem, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? Folks, right now it's words. You know, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Yeah, but as you read on, it becomes a lot more than words. If you turn over to chapter 4 and look at the subheading of chapter 4 in your Bible, it says, opposition to the rebuilding. If you turn over to chapter 6, again, the subheading there is, further opposition to the rebuilding. Nehemiah is facing opposition, and it's not words, folks. As you read these chapters and you un unpack what's going on in this story, you find out that uh, Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem have now come against them physically. They have threatened them harm. In fact, it's actually recorded that, that the workers on the wall are asked to be, have a trowel and be rebuilding that wall with one hand and a sword in the other as they keep getting attacked. Because these people groups, the Ammonites and all of them that are around Jerusalem are saying, we don't want to see Jerusalem come back to its glory. And you're not really a country, you're not really a fort. We don't take you seriously if you have a city with no walls. And so Nehemiah says, hey, I'm rebuilding the walls. That's what God has called me to. That's what I've been praying about. I feel a conviction to it. Our Xerxes allowed for it to happen. God has been working and intervening here. And I'm not going to let anybody named Sanballat get me off of the task that God has put before me. But let's face it, all of us have them, right? You ever had a Sanballat in your life? 
someone that's coming against you. The tendency to think when you have opposition in your life is, 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 you know, it's like I ran into a problem here. And that means this isn't God's will. We have this idea as Christians that it's smooth sailing ahead. If I give my life to Jesus and I follow him reasonably, then it's smooth sailing ahead. We'll just, we'll just track ahead with that. But that is not actually the truth. It's not always smooth sailing ahead. Sometimes when you face roadblocks, that's when you know you're finally doing something right for the kingdom of God. You have now alerted Satan that you might actually be a Christian that might make a difference to do something. Nehemiah wasn't facing opposition because he was doing something wrong, folks. Nehemiah was facing opposition because he was doing something right. Sometimes when we're doing the right thing, we're like, man, this should be easier. I'm doing the right thing, God. I'm trying. I'm doing the right thing. And yet I feel like I still have all this opposition and all of these things working against me and coming against me. You're right. And that might be affirmation that you're actually doing the right thing. And here's the truth. When you start to do something for God that pushes people out of their comfort zone, sometimes Christians, other Christians in your church, when you start doing something for God that pushes people out of their comfort zone, people who you expect to be supportive and encouraging are sometimes critical and discouraging. We think, oh, they'll be supportive and encouraging of my new ministry endeavor, but instead what you meet is critical and discouraging. But the fact is that people who are met with opposition, they respond in two ways. They either become discouraged or they become determined. And as you read the book, you see there are glimpses of Nehemiah might be a little discouraged, but... He holds fast to what God has called him to do. He holds fast to the pathway and the race that's marked out before him. He knows what God has called him to do. He decides, you know what? I'm going to do it. I'm going to be determined. I'm going to stand firm. I'm going to trust God more than I trust man and trust people and trust the outcomes of this world. And I'm going to continue to push against this obstacle called opposition. The fourth obstacle this morning is the obstacle of slow progress. Has anyone ever done work on your home or remodeled a home? Anyone, raise your hands please. Show your hands, yes. How many of you have ever experienced slow progress? When you thought, oh honey, this will only take two days. <laughs> just, just two days, I'm gonna take off work. Two days, I'll have it done. Four weeks later, still is not done. Sometimes it's not even you, right? Honey, we hired a contractor because of what happened last time. Contractor says, hey, have this thing done, two weeks, no problem. Four years later. <laughs> now, on this note, we had talked a few weeks ago about how we're redoing the bathrooms outside the sanctuary. That work actually starts tomorrow. Um, contractor's going to be here tomorrow, start working on that. Actually, it starts today. The deacons are taking out a bunch of stuff this afternoon. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. We have it down to where we have the tile being laid and the sink, the new countertops, the new vanities, the new plumbing, uh, the toilets, the dividers, everything. Everything in those bathrooms is like down to this timeline. Folks, it will only be, those bathrooms outside the sanctuary here, most of you use bathrooms on Sunday mornings in the church, it will only be closed next Sunday. Okay, next Sunday, if you need to go to the bathroom, you're going to the Oak, okay? Just, just head, on, head on over to the Oak. Uh, we'll have, you know, lighted pathway or something to let you know. Um, we do want you to go to the bathroom in Oakwood, um, but you're not going to be able to do it there. Now, we have down to a timeline, and if everyone does their part, 
this thing will be done and we will be open the first Sunday in June with the new bathrooms. Okay, the obstacle of slow progress. Sometimes our slow progress is ourselves though. Let's be honest. Procrastination, putting off what God wants you to do. Procrastination is often just the way of giving up, just not all at once. It's dignified giving up. Procrastination. But the fact is sometimes there's slow progress. There were times where I think there were days where Nehemiah's like, are we ever going to get this thing done? And then I wondered if it led to the last obstacle, the obstacle of wanting to give up. Done. You ever find yourself saying that? It's done. Toast. I can't do it anymore. I can't take it anymore. We, we, we read there in Nehemiah 6, what was the subheading on the chapter? Further opposition for the rebuilding. But there's something that actually happens that's pretty amazing. In chapter 6, if you're there, go down to verse 15. In 6.15 it says this, So the wall was completed on the, on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. What? If you've ever been to Jerusalem, which I know most of you probably haven't, but if you have, that is a big wall. That's a lot of wall around the city of Jerusalem. And it's done, folks, in 52 days. Now you may say, wow, that's great. That's it. Nehemiah, mark it down. That's the book. Awesome. That's what God was trying to accomplish. He was trying to rebuild the walls, fortify the city, bring him glory, put Israel back on the map. We're done here. No, 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 no. There's, there's, there's way more. That's why you got to read the book. If you flip over to chapter 8, the subheading there says, Ezra reads the law. Do you remember why they were in exile? They walked away from God. Some of you feel like that's where you're at right now. <laughs> yeah, I'm in the season of exile. I have walked away from God. God has no part of my life. Hasn't for years. Ezra reads the law. He gets, he gets the law and he reads it to the people. It hadn't been proclaimed in Jerusalem in so long. And then look what happens in chapter 9, the subheading again. The Israelites confess their sins. They read the law of God. Israel confesses their sins, and the rest of the story is that Israel is going to find themselves turning back to God, coming out of exile, and being restored as God's chosen people again. You know, Nehemiah's story is a lot about perseverance and endurance. And I want to encourage you this morning as we close this series by saying this, the point at which you are ready to quit is likely the turning point in your efforts. When you're running your race of faith and you meet obstacles and you feel like some of you feel like it's been an obstacle course one after another, remember the moment when you decide not to give up, you decide to keep going is the moment where it seems like everything begins to fall into place and to click. And at some point, the challenge of running every race comes down to one decision, one more step. One more foot in front of the other. And so I want to leave you with this this morning. Galatians chapter 6 verse 9 says this. Let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. I know that some of you, when you came into the Christian life, you thought it's a fun run. Fun run, one mile. I could do that. 
I can do that without Jesus. Anybody can do the one mile fun run. And then you get into it and you realize this is a marathon. I don't know if you guys are step checkers. You know, we used to have the pedometer. It was like a little pager you wore, you know, you remember the pedometer, check counting your steps. Some of you are giggling right now, it's good. Um, then we, you know, we get phones that can somehow count it. I don't know how that works exactly. And then we get these watches, right? And the watches keep track of your steps. I don't know if you guys are, are step trackers, but you know, a lot of people set a goal for a day. Hey, I want 5,000 5, to 10,000 steps. Most people have a goal. I'm going to have that many steps in a day because 5,000 steps averaged is about two and a half miles. 10,000 steps is five miles. And for our health, you know, we are called to be a people that move. Don't just sit around all the time. And so we, we set these goals. We say, hey, we're, we're going to do this. And that sounds awesome. Sometimes we're like, yes, I did 10,000 steps today. Urgh. Do you know how many steps are in a marathon on average? And this is at a runner's gate, a little bit more than just a walk. 55,239 steps in 26.2 mile marathon. Yeah, anybody do that by midnight tonight, post it online. I will applaud you and call you crazy. <laughs> but the fact is, is that the Christian walk is that. The race of faith that's marked out for us by God is that it's a marathon. And there's going to come this point at mile 11 for some of you. Maybe it's mile 13, maybe it's mile 17, or maybe... For some reason, a lot of racers say it's about mile 19, where you just, your body's shutting down, you're like, okay, I'm getting to this point, I, just, I think I gotta tap out, I gotta bail out, I gotta get out on this thing. It's at that point which you make a decision in your mind, with God, all things are possible, I think I can finish this race, he's marked out the course, He sent me on his way, you know what? I think I'm gonna finish. I think I don't want to give up. And at that point you say, you know what? One more step. One more step. And for some of you, that's what God's calling you to this morning, is one more step toward God. One more step. What is your next step to following Jesus? What is it that you haven't done that you know it's been in your mind for years? I know I'm supposed to follow God this direction, but I, uh. And so many times I meet the obstacles and I, I, let them, I let them take me off course at some point. Trust God more than you trust yourself or anything else in this world and say, you know what? I'm going forward. I'm moving along. I'm going God's direction. And I'm not going to give up. That's what Nehemiah did. There's a glorious testimony about a man who ran his way, race well because he finished strong. Don't give up.